It's great to be here. We're going to continue our study with uh, Colossians Part 7. I've been working on this study for the better part of a year, and this is basically the conclusion of that study, so it's kind of a bittersweet time for me. I've, I've enjoyed going through this, uh, but it's, it's good to see this book as, as it was intended to be written, and, and I encourage you to do that as often as you can, to really dig into the Word of God, because it's, it's changed the way I look at, the way I study, and uh, how I approach my study. So we're going to talk about the new family this morning. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. But before we do that, I want to go through a quick review of what we've talked about. In part one, we talked about the fact that Paul was in prison and he's writing this letter to the church at Colossae. And he was told by Epaphras, who was a cornerstone member of this church at that time, of some great things that were happening in this church. But he also tells him of some potential hazards for the church, mainly those being false teachings and the influence of the society that surrounds them. Paul then prays that they would grow in wisdom and knowledge, but not only take that wisdom and knowledge, but also apply it to their lives or to walk worthy. In part two, Paul gives a description of who Jesus is and calls him the creator of all. He also speaks to the preeminence or the superiority uh, that he has over the world and also over the church. In that, in that study, we also looked at what we call the Colossian heresy. Some may call it um, by other names, but the Colossian heresy was a mixture of Hebrew, Greek, and pagan ideologies. Basically said that Jesus was not the creator and that Jesus could not be God. In part three, Paul goes into a detailed explanation of his work in service for Jesus Christ. He wants to explain why he does what he does, his passion, his motivation. And that's basically for Christ and for the church, so, so that the church would grow and would thrive. In part four, Paul talks about Christ being the solution to false doctrine. How that when we obey Christ and obey the gospel, we die to the old man and we're raised to walk in a new life. We're raised to be different. Uh, through Christ's sacrifice, he talks about that the fact that they were forgiven, that the old law was, was no longer in effect, that it was nailed to the cross. He talks about the idea that the old law and the wisdom of men were no match for the authority and the superiority of Jesus Christ. In part five, he talks about not allowing man-made religion to disqualify them of their prize. We'll get there, I promise. <laughs> He's, he talks about this idea that these people were trying to bring back the old law. They were trying to force it on the Colossian church at this time. Not only that, they were trying to enforce this, these laws of men, this man-made wisdom on them. But he says these were not authorized by Christ. In part six, he talks about focusing on things above. The fact that we need to do away with sin, all sin, not just some. We talked about it in this way, that they had just injured their old man. They needed to put him to death. The fact that Christ would change who we are in all areas of our lives, not only that, but he should be the focus of every aspect of our lives. So as we move into part seven, we're talking about the new family. And when we think about the book of Colossians up to this point, Paul is, emphasizes over and over the idea of the authority of Jesus Christ and how he should be the authority in every aspect of our lives. But I think we have to look at this with the understanding of who Paul was writing this letter to, the context of who the audience of this letter was intended for. And that was a group of, of Christians at Colossae who had obeyed the gospel, but had grown up in a Roman society that was full of sin. They had grown up in a, in a province of Rome where before they were Christians, the sin probably seemed normal to them, 
and acceptable to them. But now they're being called to live under a new authority. No longer are they under, under the authority of the Roman government. Now they're under the authority of Christ. Yes, they have to submit to the authority of the Roman government, but now Christ is their ultimate authority. In chapter 3, again, we talked about the idea of putting away all sin and not just some of it. How that we should change every aspect of our lives. But even the households that they lived in had to change also. You see, Paul understands the value of a godly home. And we have to understand the value of a godly home also. As Christ changes the individual, that should change the way we, we live in our homes. The way we conduct our homes, the way we're a father, the way we act as a mother, the way we act as a child, everything should change. And he realized that these people who were sitting in this church at Colossae had grown up in Roman families that were completely different than what Paul is about to teach them about the new Christian family. It's all about where our focus is. And I think this is not only a good theme that we see throughout the book of Colossians, but this is a good theme for what we're going to talk about today. And that's going back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. So you have this idea of these people who have grown up in these Roman families and what a family should be, but that's not the focus anymore, is it? It's got to be on the, what a family should be when it's dedicated to Christ. And that's what this is all about. Where is the focus? And honestly, the home can be a hard place for us to do that. The home is where we let our guard down. The home is where we feel comfortable. It can be hard for us to be the person we need to be at home sometimes. But God calls us to have strong homes under his direction. Before we move into, into what we're going to talk about this morning, I found this quote, and it says, Christ is the center of our home, a guest at every meal, a silent listener to every conversation. Can that be said about our homes? Is Christ comfortable in our homes? Are we, are we building a home that's based on his word? I hope we are. We have to use the word of God to direct our homes and not the beliefs of society, not what society says is okay. What does God say? Again, where is our focus? Is our focus on the spiritual? Is it on the earthly? Because when it comes to our homes, our, our homes have to be focused on the spiritual. The fact is, is the church is only as strong as the families that make up that church. And Paul understood that. Strong families are cultivated through godly leadership in the home. And if we don't have godly leadership in the home, and if our home is not built on his word, we're going to have problems. We're going to have issues. God has to be the ultimate authority in our home. So to fully understand what Paul is talking about when he's talking to this church at Colossae, I think we need to understand kind of what the traditional Roman home looked like at this time. Because you have to understand, Paul is writing this letter to people who grew up in Roman households. Paul understood that the church would never develop like it should if the home life of these people was not according to the word of God. Because again, godly homes is where strong churches come from. That's how we build strong churches. 
Again, they only knew this Roman family. So I want to talk about that for just a minute this morning. First of all, in the traditional Roman home, you had arranged marriages. And in the United States, we don't quite understand this. We don't, we don't get this. Because in the United States, we find somebody we're interested in, we cultivate a relationship, we build that relationship, and then we make the decision to be married based on our love for each other. But yet in the Roman household, it was nothing like that. You had a father who arranged the marriage for you, so you did not have a choice in who you were going to marry. So typically, that was what was taking place there. So this was not a marriage built on love, and I think if we go in it with that understanding, we kind of truly understand what Paul is trying to get at here. These people knew arranged marriages. They had a long way to go in their love for each other. As we look at the Roman family unit also, the father was the top dog, and that was the oldest male. Sometimes you had extended family living within the same houses, but that father had complete control. He could arrange marriages. He could arrange divorces. He controlled all decisions that took place in the home, even the life and death of the family members within that home. That's serious authority. He could divorce his wife at will. If his wife didn't give him a son, he could divorce her with no recourse on that. The father had the, even had the final decision on the child that's been born, whether it would be stay in the family or not. So what would happen is, is that child, the midwife would deliver that child she would place it on the floor. The father would come by. He would either pick it up. If he picked it up, that child was accepted into the family. If that child was left on the floor by the father, that child would be taken into a common area in the, in, in the area around where there are a lot of people, and it would either be taken in by another family, it would be sold into slavery, or it would be left for dead. That's authority. Final decision. You don't question that. And that's what that Roman household was built on. Mothers were expected to care for the home, to raise children, to keep the house, which is not much different than we read. But the fact is, is they were not seen as equals to men. You had men up here, you had women way down here. And a lot of times it, they were seen as a possession of the husband. You had the children who were, I read somewhere that they were not considered human until they were able to walk and talk because they, they couldn't show their value. But the children lived under a strict authority, again, of that father who made all the, the decisions based on his desires, based on his thoughts, based on his needs. They could be whipped and beaten severely without recourse. They could be sold into slavery. They could even die for their disobedience. You're talking about serious authority that's all placed on that father. Not only that, in the Roman, typical Roman household, they were usually bond servants or slaves, as we'll talk about a little later. And these slaves under the Roman law had no personal rights. They were regarded as the property of the master. They could be bought, sold. They could be mistreated at will. They were unable to own property. They were unable to enter into contract. They, were, they could not legally marry. So this is what the typical Roman household looked like to these people sitting in the pews or whatever they sat in at that time, listening to this letter being read to them. So then you have Paul coming in and he's saying, there's a new way to run our households. And what he says turns that whole idea of that traditional Roman family on its head. It changes everything. And the biggest change there is who the ultimate authority is in that household. 
And that's what we're going to start off with this morning. When, the, when, while the Colossians, while, when we look at Colossians, it doesn't specifically say Jesus Christ in those verses is the authority. It doesn't come out and specifically say that. But when you look at the book of Colossians as a whole, as we studied that, we see that Jesus Christ should be the authority in every aspect of our lives. You look at verses like Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, where he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy in, in empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. When you look at that verse, the Roman family is, is exactly what he's saying. That's human tradition. That's the ideas of man who built that system. We talked about the elemental spirits of the world and that being the basic idea of human knowledge, how it doesn't compare to the superiority and the wisdom of Christ. That's what the Roman family was built on. But you go into verse 9, he says, For in, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in with him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Christ is the head of all rule and authority, both physical and spiritual. And that extends down to our home. Colossians 1 and verse 18, it says, And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in, in everything he might be preeminent or superior. He is superior. He is the authority, and he should be the authority in our homes. And that's a major change from what we just talked about in that Roman household. Because when you look at that Roman household, you have a man making the decisions. You have a fallible wisdom of man making decisions based on what he wants, based on his desires. But now Paul is saying, Christ should be that ultimate authority. Your decision should be based on his word. There's a new authority in the Christian household. And that's the biggest change that we see when we talk about the Christian household compared to what these people listening to this letter knew as a family. So as Paul begins, he begins by speaking to the wives. And in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord or in the Lord. When we look at this word submission, it, it essentially means under obedience. It means under obedience. And you think about this statement. And this is a little touchy subject because society looks at this and they say, well, Paul is a sexist. Paul is a misogynist. Paul doesn't see women as equal to men. But I don't agree with that. They say that the Word of God is old-fashioned. I don't agree with that. You look at verses like Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. Paul speaking here, he's talking about the idea of when you make the decision to obey the gospel and you're baptized, you're seen as one in Christ. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Now listen to this. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. That's equality to a, a, a group of women who were in a Roman society where men were here and women were here, now what Paul is saying is you are on equal grounds in Christ. That's equality. So what Paul is saying here is not that because wives submit to their husbands that they're inferior in any way. That's just the way God set the home up. And we think about those elemental spirits of the world, those, those ignorant ideas of humans, if I, if I can say it any other way. 
compared to the wisdom of God? Are we going to trust in a society that says, oh, that means that women are inferior? Are we going to trust in a God who knows how a home should be ran through his infinite wisdom? Hopefully, we're trusting in God and his word because that's what it's all about. We all submit every day. I went back and listened to one of Trevor's sermons, and I'm going to kind of repeat what he said because I can't say it any better. But we submit to governments. We submit to our bosses. We submit to our elders. That doesn't mean we're inferior. Jesus submitted. By no means is he inferior. What, what wives have to understand is this is the way God set the home up. This was his structure for the home. And in his wisdom, that's how he, he asked us to do it. And this is not a type of submission, a slavery type of submission. This is a voluntary submission where the wife understands the grave responsibility of the husband as being the leader, the spiritual leader of the household. And, and what comes with that? The fact is, is you can't be the husband you need to be without a supportive, encouraging wife to help you through that. It's probably the most important job there is. Because as a husband, I make really dumb mistakes sometimes. I need my wife's advice. I'm sure you need the same. Christ knew. God knew how the family should be set up, and that's what he's asking wives to do is to submit. But again, that doesn't mean that the wife has no say. It doesn't mean that she can't offer that advice, but that encouragement and that support and that advice that, that the wife is there to give the husband makes all the difference for us as husbands. Paul then goes on and he talks about husbands. In Colossians verse, chapter 3, verse 19, he says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Again, thinking back to the context of who he is speaking to, you're talking about husbands who had ultimate authority in the Roman home, who made all the decisions even down to life and death. And now he's saying, under Christ's authority, husbands have to love their wives. And I'm sure that was probably hard for them at the time. They went from being the top dog making all the decisions in an arranged marriage where it wasn't based on love, now he's saying, you have to love your wife. And when he talks about love, it's not just any love. It's that agape love. It's an active love, a love that God has for his sons. And if you look at a parallel verse, Paul expands a little more on this in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's big love. Christ died for the church. That's a sacrificial love. He goes on in verse 28. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his, love, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh and nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. That's a big, big love. It's huge. Even for us today, we like to be selfish. We like to put ourselves first. That's not what this says. We need to make sure that our wives are taken care of physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. 
And we need to put them ahead of ourselves. Put them before us. But you get people who look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18 and they say, well, I'm the man. I have the authority. You have to submit to me. And it's no wonder our society looks at verses like Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18 when we have a love like that for our wives and say, you, you shouldn't have to submit to your husband. Society looks at how we act as husbands and then they make their decisions. And they look at verses like Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18 and say Paul's a sexist because he says that. But I'm going to tell you, if we as husbands are submitting to God like we expect our wives to submit to us, we're going to have a love like that. And it should make it easy for our wives to submit to us. Is that the type of love we have for our wives? Hopefully it is. If not, hopefully we work on that. Because if we want that to happen, if we want our wives to submit to us, we need to show the love that they deserve. And again, that's totally different from what we saw in the Roman household. Paul then goes on and he talks to the children. He says, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. And this is a pretty straightforward command. Your parents, when they ask you to do something, do it. Listen to them. In a Christian household, hopefully your parents are striving to be the best parents they can. We'll talk about that in a minute. Hopefully they want what's best for you. Listen to that. Obey your parents. You know, when you get to about teenage years, I know because I was there, you start to think, man, my parents are lame. I don't, I'm not going to listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about. They never lived in the world that I live in. And sometimes it's hard to hear that word, no. We don't want to hear it. I'm independent. Trust me, I work with teenagers every day. Teenagers do not like authority a lot of times. And that's even in the households. But the fact is, is your parents have probably have a great reason why they tell you no or why they are teaching you in a certain way. Probably because they've done or already made that really bad decision that you're about to make and they want to save you from the sorrow and the heartache that comes with that decision. Trust your parents. They want what's best for you. Not only that, through your obedience, you can learn how to be the Christian that you need to be. Proverbs 4, verse 1, Solomon says, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. Be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. If you listen to your parents and you watch their example and you emulate that example, you're going to grow up, hopefully, to be a strong Christian. Somebody who is in Christ. And that's the ultimate goal. I think of, when I think of this, I think of Timothy, who had a great faith that Paul speaks about who, from his grandmother and his mother. And then you see how Paul refers in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4 as he's talking to Timothy. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul understood that Timothy, his molding, and who he was at that point was because he had a strong home. 
His family taught him the scriptures. His family was a positive example. They molded him into into who he was at that time, who was a man who was on fire for God. Children, as a parent, we want what's best for you. We want what's best for you. But that also means that as a parent, I have a responsibility. If I expect obedience from my child, I need to be parenting in a way that, that, ha- that causes them to want to be obedient to me. And that's the question we have to ask. What kind of parent are we? What kind of example are we setting? We need to understand, first of all, that we don't own our children. Psalm 127 and 3 says our children are a gift from God. Do we see our children as a gift from God? If you look at Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4, we see who our children belong to. It says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. Our children's souls belong to God. And we are given a gift of our children, and we only have a short amount of time to make sure that we raise our children in a way that they grow up to be strong Christian people. You want security in the church? Be a godly parent. That's where it starts. And we have to give them every opportunity we can to help them succeed as a Christian in this life. In Proverbs 22 and verse 6, he says, Train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. What kind of foundation are we laying for our kids? Paul goes on and he talks to this. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse, or 3 and verse 21, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And again, I think we, once again, we must look at who Paul is talking to. Who made all of the decisions? I think that's why he specifically calls out fathers here. But I think when you look at this, this is going to apply to both parents. We can't provoke our children. And what that word means is to stir up, to arouse and embitter to irritate. We've got to be careful in how we raise our children, how we speak to our children, how we approach their their shortcomings. You know, Christian fathers are encouraged to be fathers in love. Parents are encouraged to love their kids. And again, as we talked, if you want to raise a godly child, help them get to know Christ as early as you possibly can. Let, get them in the Scriptures, just like we talked about Timothy, as early as you can. But we can't provoke our children. We can't provoke them. We can't have a parenting style that would push them away from Christ. We must, first of all, be a positive example for them, but we also have to find a balance. And this is hard. A balance where we're not too overbearing too hard on them, but also amounts where we're not too lenient with them. There's kind of that middle ground, and that's hard to find sometimes, but we've got to find that. But I think the best way that we can get to that point is understanding that our children are human. We have such high aspirations for our kids. When they do something wrong, we're hard on them. Not saying that we shouldn't discipline them. We should. That's appropriate. But sometimes... 
We're so hard on them, and we forget this idea of mercy, love, and forgiveness in our children, understanding that they are sinners, that they will sin, that they will make mistakes. And it's all about how we respond to that. Hopefully, we're not just going to respond to that with reproof, but also with love and forgiveness, the way Christ responds to our sin. We must always strive for encouragement for our children. First of all, to love, then to discipline appropriately when needed, and then finally, showing understanding, showing mercy, showing love when they do make mistakes. Showing Christ in how we live and how we raise our kids. As Paul stops talking about children, he moves on to bond servants or slaves, as we've talked about. And again, in the Roman family at that time, it was just part of the family. The slaves were part of that. And that's why I believe Paul is mentioning them here. But many people, again, just like the, the issue with women submitting, people look at this verse and they say, well, Paul's condoning slavery. And again, I don't believe that. You look back at Galatians chapter 3. He says there's neither slave nor free. There's equality in Christ. But this was the situation they were living in. And it was a bad situation. It was a rough situation. Now, I know this is a different type of slavery than what we think of in the 1800s. And we'll talk more about that in another study. But the whole point I want to make here is that it goes back to Colossians chapter 3 where it's all about your focus. Where is your focus? Is your focus on the spiritual or is it on the earthly? Because it needs to be on the spiritual. And you think about these people who are who are in this position where they are owned by another person. Paul says, work for them. Work hard for them. He says in Colossians 3.22, he says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of the heart, fearing the Lord. He's saying, have a spiritual focus. Whatever your position is in life, do it for Jesus Christ. Do it for God, not for man. And I think if anybody has the ability to speak on this, it's Paul. You think about Paul's situation as he is writing this book. He is sitting in prison unjustly for preaching the word of God. Paul had a choice. He could do everything he could to get himself out of that position in this world, or he could serve God. And that's exactly what he did. We look at Colossians 1 and verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul is sitting in prison and he says, I rejoice because of that. You know why? Because his focus was not on what was happening to him physically. It was all about what was happening to him spiritually. It was all about his understanding that his focus needed to be on Christ and spreading his word and making a change in the hearts of those he came into contact with. That's what it was all about. So yes, while these people who were in this position of slavery, it wasn't fair. And Paul's not saying it's okay. But what Paul is saying is, is have a spiritual focus. Understanding that through Christ, you can endure anything. No matter what it is on this earth. If your focus is in the right place. Paul knew that if he got the word out, it would change hearts. And through a change of hearts, it would change the world. And that's what Colossians is all about. Is letting the word of God change us 
and us going out and helping it change other people. Being different, being changed, not living in sin, not letting the situations in our life get us down, but having a focus on God where it needs to be. Don't focus on what's happening physically. Focus on what's happened to you spiritually. Now, again, that's exactly what Paul was doing. Don't focus on being a slave. Focus on knowing that you're in equal standing with everyone else in the eyes of God. Just like we talked about earlier, if you change your focus, you change your life. You might not necessarily change the situation you're in, but you change your outlook on everything. And it's a lot easier to endure those things when, you're focused, when you have a focus knowing that you have something far better waiting for you. Again, I told you Colossians 3 and 1 is, is the theme. I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to read it again here in a minute. But it's all about focus. It's all about where we are focused. He says, if, you, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, listen to this, who is your life, appears. Then you will also appear with him in glory. Is Christ our life this morning? I hope he is. I hope he's our focus. Because whether it's at our jobs or whether it's in other areas of life that we're struggling if we know that Jesus Christ is our focus and we know that we have something better waiting for us, we can continue to serve him and we can make a change because people are going to see us in these horrible situations still trying to do God's will, still having joy, still finding peace. And they're going to say, where are you getting that from? How can you go through so much and still trust God? And you're going to say, because I have my focus on something far better than this earth. And it creates opportunities for us. In Colossians 23, he goes on, he says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back and the wrong, for the wrong that he has done. So again, we look at this. Paul again is saying, work hard. Don't do it for, your, for the earthly master. Do it for me. Work for me because it's only temporary. It's only a short amount of time. Romans 8 and verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of, this present time, of these present times are not worth comparing to the glory that is revealed to us. It's all about focus. Our situation and how we react to those situations is all about where our focus is. And the question is, is where is our focus this morning? Let's live our lives for Christ and focus on him and live for him in everything we do. But I think he ends this section to these slaves with a profound statement. He says, there is no, and there is no partiality. Again, equality in Christ. While society may not see you as equal, while society may look down on you, guess what? Christ sees you as important, and you have value in Christ. And to people who were in this position of being a slave, to them, that's freedom. To them, that's hope. To know that it isn't just about this life. It's about something 
far bigger, and that's Christ. And that if you're willing to submit to him, you can have salvation. You can live free with him for all eternity. Paul then goes on and he closes out this section with talking to the masters. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Again, another profound statement, isn't it? Where you have a society where you had masters here and you had slaves here. And now Paul's saying, you need to treat them fairly. You need to treat them justly. You need to, show, you need to treat them in an equal way, in a just way. You know, Paul lobbies that the masters would treat them how they want to be treated, in other words. You look at Jesus' command in John 13 and 34. He says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. As a Christian, you need to love. And it doesn't matter who it is. You need to show love. And that's what he's telling these masters. Show love. Treat them the way you want Christ to treat you. Treat them with love. Treat them with mercy. Treat them with forgiveness. You see, if you commit to Christ and are willing to follow his word, there's no need for a harsh government takeover to end slavery because it's going to end in the hearts of the people who obey Christ. That's what it's all about. Again, it goes back to our focus. And I think that's proof Paul didn't condone slavery right there. But I think overall, as we look at what we've talked about this morning, these are the verses we've read. Highlighted in green, it says, as is fitting in the Lord, for this pleases the Lord, fearing the Lord, as for the Lord and not men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive inheritance and inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. It's all back to our focus, isn't it? Colossians 3 and verse 1, focus on the spiritual, not the earthly. Where's our focus this morning? Are we focusing on Christ? Are we focusing on ourselves? Now, as we can conclude our study of Colossians, I want, to, I want us to truly think about this idea and how we apply it in our lives. If you want to be successful in preaching the word, do it for Jesus Christ. If you want to be a good father, a good mother, a good child, do it for Jesus Christ. If you want to be a good employee, do it for Jesus Christ. And change your focus, because once again, changing your focus changes your life. And our life must be dedicated to Jesus Christ. Before you can change your focus, before you can be the person you need to be for Christ, you need to be in Christ. And Paul addressed that in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11, talking to these people who had obeyed Christ. He says, In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. If you have not obeyed the gospel, I plead with you to do that this morning. Become a part of the body as we've talked about in this study the body of Christ, and make him the authority in your life. Allow him to direct you and to lead you. And when you do that, your life will change. Colossians 2, 6, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus of the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Once you obey Christ, you can allow his word to direct you and to lead you. 
And then your focus starts to change. Colossians 3 and verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also then you also will appear with him in glory. Is Christ your life this morning? If he's not, make that change today. If you've never obeyed the gospel, we can help you with that. If you need the prayers of the church, we can help you with that also if you'll come to the front as we stand and sing.